Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we want to thank you once again for this special time of worship. And even within this time, we now dedicate this portion to come to your word and be instructed. And so I pray that you would unite our hearts around this truth. I pray that you would build us up. I pray that we would be encouraged to look to you. I pray that we would be encouraged to rest in what you have done on our behalf in your work. And that we be motivated to continue to run to you every single day as we encounter various trials. Pray that you would bless this word, encourage our mothers, encourage our fathers and everyone else who is listening and uh, bless me, I pray, as um, we speak this truth. In Christ's name we pray and ask. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you and invite you to turn with me to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are here and who are there. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. It's uh, pretty cool that we have uh, this special day that's been devoted to celebrate our mothers. And for that, we should probably thank Woodrow Wilson, who signed this into law in 1914. And so now every second Sunday of May, we get this special privilege as we worship the Lord to encourage our mothers as well. You know, motherhood is a great role. Um, you may have many other roles, but oh, how important this role is. And as many of you are aware, mothers, this role comes with heap of responsibilities which change over time, but probably never gets easier. You know, motherhood, it stresses you, it pressures you, it changes you, it frightens you, and at the same time somehow delights you. You know, it simultaneously exhausts you, and then it refreshes you. Some of you are just beginning to taste what motherhood is all about, and you're probably working on that uh, car seat bicep of yours. Um, others of you are thinking about um, how to finish off the school year, homeschooling three to four children, and you just can't wait till, till the end of May. Uh, some of you are getting ready, believe it or not, to graduate your firstborn from high school. And you're looking forward to it, and you're just excited, and at the same time, um, perhaps frightened, not knowing what uh, awaits them in the future. We probably have some moms who joined us this morning who um, have basically graduated their kids and they're out of the house and they have their own families and you continue to pray for them. You continue to call them, to encourage them and what a blessing you are to your children. You know, when you think of motherhood, I doubt that adjectives such as composed and quiet even enter your mind. You know, motherhood, if you were to sum it all up, you could probably say that it's a glorious mess. Um, and rarely would the activities which surround your life, especially with little kids, could be described as composed and quiet. 
And although that's true more often than not, the question that I want to ask each of you and the rest of us who are, uh, who are listening, does the state of your heart, does the state of your soul often mirror the chaos around you? What is the state of your heart on any given day? Let's just say Wednesday, right in the middle of the week. What is the regular state of your soul? Are you agitated? Are you fussy? Are you screaming or are you quiet and composed? You know, Psalm 30 or 131 will be very instructive for us this morning because in this Psalm, David illustrates contentment with God, contentment with the Lord. And it answers, what does it look like to be content with the Lord regardless of your status, regardless of your circumstances? The Psalm helps us to pursue this composure and quiet soul. It, li- it illustrates this composure and contentment with a picture of a weaned child's relationship to his mother in verse 2. Hence the title of the sermon, A, a Weaned Soul. The psalm is linked to 130, which Mike read at the beginning of our passage. Uh, we're, we're right in the middle of psalms here. If you look at your psalms, like Psalm 130, 131, 132, the title of these psalms is Psalm of Ascents, a song of ascents. These are the psalms and the songs and the prayers that the sons of Israel were singing and reciting to themselves as they journeyed from all over the place to Jerusalem to celebrate various festivals of God. You know, as we read this psalm, it's one of those psalms that you need to read very slowly and just let the words, almost each word, sink deep in in you. We'll begin reading with Psalm 130, Psalm 130, beginning with verse 6, and we'll read through 131, just three verses here for us this morning. Psalm 130, verse 6, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. A song of a sense of David, O Lord, my heart is not proud nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. You know, Spurgeon said of this psalm that it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. And I think that uh, you would agree with this statement as we've read Psalm 131. As we go through this psalm, I want to look at four things for us. But the main theme that I want us to grasp here from this psalm is that acknowledging God for who he is and resting in him as such 
is the way to maintain a weaned soul, a composed and quiet heart. Acknowledging God for who he is and resting in him as such is the process by which we maintain a a weaned soul, which is our composed and quiet heart. I want us to look at four things this morning. Number one, a weaned soul acknowledges God. Number two, a weaned soul maintains a humble posture. Number three, a weaned soul rests in God. And number four, a weaned soul practices hope. Let us begin with verse one by looking at a weaned soul that acknowledges God. I don't know if you often think about this when you read Psalms that are recorded for us on the pages of scriptures that these Psalms more often than not are private prayers of the saints. A lot of them are prayers of David that, that he literally recorded. And as, as he shepherded, he prayed to the Lord and in God's sovereignty, uh, God leaks these prayers for us so that we can benefit from them. And so that we can grow through them, which is, which is pretty amazing. These are private prayers. And as we come to Psalm 131, we are invited to listen in on David's conversation with God in the first two verses. David begins his prayer first by acknowledging who God is. And he says, Oh Lord, David reminds himself who it is that he is talking to. When you see the name Lord in all capital letters, as you see it um, here in Psalm 131 twice, um, this word, this, this name uh, Lord It refers to the preeminent name of God. I am. And it goes back all the way to Exodus chapter three. You recall in Exodus chapter three, God speaks with Moses and he reveals himself to Moses. And then the rest of the Israelites as I am and David, or uh, rather Moses, when he's speaking with God, I'm going to go there. He says, and, and who should I tell him that sent me? And God says, I am has sent you. God's name is the declaration of being because only God is. He is self-sufficient. He is self-sustaining. And as such, God speaks everything else into existence. And as God, or as David approaches God here in prayer in verse one, and as the Israelites who would then recite these songs, recite these songs on the way to Jerusalem, they, they understand that this is the God that they come to see. This is the God that they come to acknowledge. This is the Yahweh they come to worship. Acknowledging God as preeminent and self-sufficient, the one who is life and the one who gives life allows you and allow David to have the right perspective. You know, when your heart is racing, when your soul is agitated within you, where do you run? What is a way? What is the process that you choose to compose yourself, mother or father or student or anyone else watching? How do you deal with your anxieties and fears and, and frustrations? I want to remind you what, what Jesus himself did. Remember when the death of his hour had come and when Jesus's own heart is racing. We don't often think about that. We don't think often think that Jesus was anxious at any point of his life. 
But Jesus was anxious in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, verse 38, he says to them, to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And where does he run? And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not I, but as you will. And look what happens in verse 46 of the same chapter of Matthew 26. He comes back to his disciples and he says, get up, let's go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. How did Jesus regain his composure and his peace so that he can go through the trials of the cross? He did it by acknowledging his father, his love, his care, his power, his will by running to him. When our souls are noisy and chaos negatively impacts our attitudes, what should we be doing? We should learn from David who comes to the Lord, who runs to the Lord to acknowledge him by faith. Now, let me ask you this. What do you think is the greatest hurdle in our lives to acknowledge God? What is the greatest obstacle to us to come and run to Christ? Look what David says in the rest of this verse. My heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Our pride keeps us from acknowledging and relying on God more than anything else. And I want us to consider the second point, a weaned soul maintains a humble posture. A weaned soul not only runs to acknowledge God, but as he acknowledges God, he understands his humble posture. David denounces here in verse one and confesses three forms of pride that get in the way of us acknowledging God for who he is and to continue to hope in him. You know, pride, in the, uh, pride gets in the way and, and it says, no, God, uh, you are not who you say you are. You know, our pride makes us to behave in a way as if we were saying, God, I know that you say this about yourself, but, but I'm not, I'm going to act as if that's not true. I, I can't trust you. Therefore, I will behave according to what I think is good. But David on his place, remember, this is a process on his play on his way, right? To a place where he can declare that his heart is composed and quiet. Verse two, he maintains a humble posture by confessing and denouncing his pride. How does he do that? Look at these three ways. Number one, David acknowledges that he is a nobody. David acknowledges that he is a nobody. He says, my heart is not proud. The heart is a metaphor for personhood. It's, it's who you are. Proverbs 4.23 says that from your heart flow the springs of life. It's, it's who you are, who you say. It's, it's what you do, what you think, what, what you feel. It flows out of your heart. So that's why a proud heart or some of your translations say that a heart that is lifted up can be a cause of great pain and distress in life. Ultimately, when you think about it, a proud heart longs for notoriety and fame. It loves to be somebody it is not and cannot be. 
And so David says, Lord, my heart is not proud. Carl Henry once responded as he was being commended for his humility by saying, how can I be proud standing next to the cross? How can I be proud standing next to the cross? And that's really the issue for us here this morning, isn't it? Uh, do we consider Jesus as the, the only real somebody that is worthy of our praise, that is worthy of our adoration? Or, or do we standing, even as Christians, in the shadow of the cross, man, we, we just long to be noticed. We, we long to be known. We long to somehow advance in this life beyond where God would have us now. And I know that it, it often sounds like a cliche statement, you know, make much of Jesus or we're making much of Christ or, or Jesus is the only real somebody. But, but think about this. It's so true that our minds are often preoccupied with ourselves so that there is no more room for thoughts about Jesus. And our lack of considering Christ inevitably results in even greater longing to consider and to dwell on ourselves. You see, the heart that is lifted up is preoccupied with itself, but the heart that is humble is, is free to be preoccupied with someone else. And the Christian heart that is humble is, is preoccupied primarily with Christ and those he put in their path. Consider this, that pride is really comfortable everywhere, right? Pride is comfortable with the rich and pride is comfortable with the poor. There are people at work who are proud. There are people in ministry who are proud. Pride, you know, is, is always busy. It's always planning. And even if it's, even if it's not active, it, it's just sitting there waiting for an opportunity to exalt me. To see how I can be advanced above the rest. However, pride is, is not comfortable in a composed and quiet heart that acknowledges God as good and as sovereign. So to maintain a, a humble posture, David first and foremost acknowledges that he is a nobody, that his heart is not proud. Number two, David refuses to be contemptuous. David refuses to be contemptuous. He says, nor my eyes haughty. You know, pride is not just about me, but pride is always about you. Pride is not just about me, it's about you. It's not enough for a proud person to think of himself as someone important. It must also judge and belittle others. That's, that's the end result of pride. David Paulison, he says, pride says, I'm right in myself. Haughty eyes say, I'm right compared to you. It's just the natural progression of pride. It's just the natural progression of a proud heart. Proverbs 6.17, I will recall, says, calls haughty eyes, proud eyes, an abomination to God. Have you noticed that even people who feel lousy oftentimes about themselves are judgmental towards others? It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter of what your rank or what your position is. Someone says that pride is a mother that give birth to all other sins. When you feel inferior to others, right? You don't admire, you don't respect, you, you don't want to consider others. But what do you do? You envy, you hate, you nitpick, you grumble, you criticize. 
and you do all of that, I do that because somehow I want to make myself look better. You know, I think we are often guilty of haughty eyes, of eyes that are lifted up when we compare ourselves to each other. Everyone's aware of the temptation to, to compare, you know, me, myself to one another. But I think for moms, for, for parents in general, comparing yourselves or, or your children or, or your parenting to others is a very strong temptation. Um, think about everything that we broadcast to one another through like social media. We, we compare ourselves and, and we see, we look at these pictures and videos and we see how we measure up. And often the result of comparison results in either self-exaltation or self-loathing. Why is comparison so dangerous? Have you ever thought about why, why comparison is so dangerous? You know, I, I, I've heard this uh, said before, and it was really helpful for me personally, because uh, when we compare, we compare things on only the horizontal plane. Like, for instance, um, we think like, hey, um, at what age did your child take his first steps? Was it like five months, seven months, 11, 15, two years, right? But when you think about it, like, why does it matter? Why does it matter? For most moms who are watching right now, or, or dads for that matter, the age your babies began to walk had very little to do with you. Had very little to do with your parenting, right? Uh, it doesn't really say much about how good your parenting is or how bad your parenting is. But, but we often think like, you know, I look at my children and I'm like, man, my kid is, is 13 months old already and he hasn't taken a step. And look at that little Johnny running around seven months and, and he's well on his way. And, and what do you do? You, you start to compare and you're like, man, that genius parents, genius mom. She spends the most time with their kids, training them how to walk. I wonder what they're doing that I am not doing. But when you think about it, these differences are insignificant at the end of the day, aren't they? And what happens, you begin to get envious, or in some cases, you even start to despise your own lot, your own place. And you begin to accumulate with this, this additional noise, additional anxiety. But get this, what's even more dangerous is we take these horizontal differences between our parenting, our mothers, fathers, ministers, pastors, and we turn them into as someone called vertical ladders of accomplishment. And now all of a sudden, when your child walks, it says something about you. When my child walks, it says something about me. My worth as a dad, your worth as a mother in comparison to another mother. And it gets worse if you begin to spiritualize it so that when you're disappointed in yourself, you begin to think that somehow you have failed the Lord. You have failed God. You did not perform. And if by comparing ourselves, we discover a real weakness in our hearts, it oftentimes leads to self-loathing. And brothers and sisters, self-loathing never leads to repentance. It only puts you under a pile of guilt because you focus on yourself and not on God. Moms, in your best moments of motherhood, 
aren't you reminded that you are still very weak in yourself? And is that a a bad thing? No, absolutely not. You know, I've read someone's blog and they said, super mom is a myth, even though you read her blog. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Look what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, where Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. What is this treasure that he's talking about? If you, if you read previous verses, this treasure that he's talking about is the glory of the gospel. And God has chosen to display this glorious gospel in weak vessels, in vessels that are weak, that are earthen vessels. God had determined it this way so that what? So that his strength would be drastically emphasized. If you have a great vessel, then the power that is within the vessel is less visible. But if you got a really weak vessel, and if that vessel is excelling, if that vessel is doing well, if that vessel is focused on God, then God receives the glory so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Mothers, fathers, pastors, ministers, workers, relish your weakness because it is meant to drive you to the cross. And husbands, encourage your wives to look to Jesus, to acknowledge God in your parenting, to refuse to be contemptuous in order to avoid all the unnecessary noise in your heart. That's what David says. I'm not looking to be someone I'm not. I'm not contemptuous. I'm not looking down at others. And notice the third thing David says, I understand and I embrace my limitations. I love this part of the verse, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things which are too difficult for me. While David's first two denials here in verse one, they deny the sin of pride. This one denies the sin of presumption. David did not preoccupy himself with doing things that only God can do. Think about this church. What is too great and too marvelous for us? And if you were to sit down and write a list, right, you would write a long list. Because in reality, almost everything that we deal in life is too great and too marvelous for us. I mean, think about your life. Think about your breaths. Think about everything that is involved in you just simply living for the next minute. It's just too great and too marvelous. Think about all the variables that are involved in keeping your kids alive as they play in your driveway. Things that are too great and too marvelous. This word great here, nor do I involve myself in great matters. This adjective great is uh, in so many places attributed to God. It's so great. It's God great. And David says that only God in his wisdom knows all things and keeps all things going. 
But this truth about not occupying ourselves with, with things that are too great and too difficult and too marvelous for us, it just attacks our desire to control everything in our lives, right? When we think about anything that's meaningful to us in our lives, we desire to control it. Pride makes us insert ourselves where only God should be. Humility, on the other hand, this posture of humility, right? It leads you to properly assess yourself and to say, you know what? I don't, I don't belong in there. I don't need to get in there. These things are just too great for me. And that's okay to acknowledge. But in our attempt to control them, we just freak out and only, and only create more anxiety and heartache. And David says here, I do not play God. I accept the fact of who I am. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. Church, do you know there are some things that God says are none of your business and that's okay. And in fact, that should give us hope that should allow us to rest. That should ease our anxiety because we are not called to figure everything out. We are called to trust God in everything. You know, here's one way to think about this. I, I heard of this example and I thought it was very applicable here. Um, imagine yourself flying in an airplane and you begin to experience turbulence. And you s- try to sit through it. You try to, you know, be calm and composed and not think much about it. But, you know, after a while, um, you said, man, I- I've had enough of this. So what you do is you get up out of your seat. You, you ran into um, the cockpit You take the pilot out of his seat and you put him right there and you sit in his seat and, and then you start looking around and you look up and you look down and all of a sudden you see uh, switches and you see dials and you see gauges. You begin to see red lights coming on, buzzers start, you know, beeping you look down and you try to find instructions and, and you see stuff written in a different language and, and you begin to experience more turbulence and all of a sudden you feel like you're beginning to veer off to the side and, and um, you're in the pilot seat. What are you feeling at that moment? If after having done this, what are you feeling at the moment? You realize that you are completely unqualified to correct the plane and you're scared to death. Why do you feel this way? Why are you so anxious? Well, it's because as David says, you are now involved in things which are too great and too complicated and too marvelous for you. Ever find yourself wanting to be in the driver's seat of your life only to experience even greater distress and noise. How did David compose his heart? What did David do? I want us to look at number three, a weaned soul rests in God. A weaned soul rests in God. Look what he says in in verse two. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me, but I have composed and quieted my soul. David says, I have quieted my noisy self and have come to experience peace that surpasses 
understanding. It's the same thought that, that Paul says in Philippians, right? Do not be anxious for anything, but what? Cast all your anxieties on God. David has, has gone through, he says, this weaning process and has gained contentment. He says, I was once noisy, but now I am composed. What did he do? Well, look what he says. Surely, but this word surely here is, is instead of, he, it's a great comparison here. Great contrast. Instead of trying to be in the driver's seat, instead of trying to meddle with things that I cannot meddle with, that I cannot understand. Instead of looking down on others, instead of being proud and hard and thinking that I am someone. And in fact, David was someone. David was a king of Israel. He was the greatest one at that particular moment. But he said, instead of doing all of that, I what? I decided. I have, surely I have composed my soul. He, it literally means I have leveled my soul. This word composed here in verse 2 is also used in Isaiah 28, 25 with reference to a farmer's field that had one, once been rough, but is now uh, planted and is level. David is saying that his inner soul is, is not churning. It is not stormy, but is calm and smooth. How was he able to, to compose himself? Let me read you a couple of other excerpts. From David Pallison, he says, Only one thing is strong enough to overpower and slay unruly cravings and a stormy life. What God promises to do in and through Jesus Christ. It is by precious and very great promises that we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. From God's side, we escape ourselves by being loved by Jesus Christ through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit himself. From our side, we escape ourselves by learning a lifestyle of intelligent repentance, genuine faith, and specific obedience. Here, what David is saying is his focus is on himself. He says, I have told my soul to be quiet. I have told my soul enough is enough. Enough of worries, enough of anxieties. But what did he do? He said it and he looked at someone else. He looked to someone else and you, he said, rest in God, in that very same Lord, in Yahweh, who sustains you. David, in essence, says, I let God be God. He removed himself from the cockpit and occupied his own seat in the back. He stopped trying to control the uncontrollable. And in the language of our kids, he stopped fussing. As adults, we, we, we often fuss. And that's what he said, I have leveled my soul. Look at the metaphor that David employs here. He talks about a weaned child. And most of us, especially you moms, are very well aware of um, and have seen a nursing child before the weaning process begins, right? When, the, when, a, when an infant is hungry um, and is placed on the mother's lap, that infant is agitated, fussy, anxious. And if you delay in giving him milk for just a second, you will, or he'll let you know about it. You will hear you will hear fusses and you will hear, hear screams. 
He needs nothing else but milk. Why? Because that is his life and that is his sustenance and that is his satisfaction. And yet, when you begin that weaning process, mother continues the process because she knows what is best for the child despite all the struggles. But then, have you seen a child, that same child two weeks later, after the child had been weaned, the change is pretty amazing. The child no longer climbs on his mother's lap because he wants milk, but because he wants his mother. He wants to be in her presence. It's no longer just for food. It's to be around her. It's to be with her. And this is an amazing picture of resting in God. You no longer come to him for what you can get out of him. And this is the difference between a nursing baby and the weaned child. Is that you come to God to be in his presence and to rest in him. To remind yourself, to acknowledge him as your Lord and as your provider. You come to God because you want him not things from him. Listen to what Spurgeon said when he was commenting on this weaning process. For a weaned child thinks nothing of himself. It is but a little babe. Whatever consciousness it has at all about the matter, it is not conscious of any strength or any wisdom. It is dependent entirely upon its mother's care. And blessed is that man who is brought to lie very low in his own spirit before the Lord. Resting on the bosom of infinite love. Isn't this a great picture? And this is very much consistent with what Paul said in his own testimony. In Philippians chapter 4 verses 11 and 13. He says, I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content. In whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. I think we oftentimes skip this, this phrase when we read this passage. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Think about this. Simply to acknowledge God is not faith. Many people acknowledge the man upstairs. Faith is to acknowledge him as God and to rest in him as such. To be content all that God is for you. Finally, David shifts from his own personal testimony to exhortation. If you look at, once again, the psalm in verses 1 and 2, David speaks of himself, but in verse 3, David calls the people of God to live with the same confidence that he has learned. Number three, verse three, O Lord, or O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. I want us to look at the fourth thing. A weaned soul practices hope. A weaned soul practices hope. And he says this, O Israel, Hope in the Lord. Hope in God. What is this hope? What is he calling them to do? Hope is not just wishful thinking. Is it? 
It is a, a joyful expectation and anticipation of what the Lord is going to do for us. Who is this God? Who is this Lord that he's talking about? It's the, the same all-sufficient, self-sustaining Lord. He is the true God, the only redeemer. He is the sustainer. He is the I am. And later on, in the gospel, this Lord reveals himself as Jesus Christ, the Lord. And if you read the gospel of John, you find out that this is, in fact, who he says he is. That that Lord is Jesus himself. And for us who are reading this psalm on the right side of the cross, we look back and we read and we say, Oh, Israel, those who hope in God Hope in Christ. Put your hope in Christ. What are we supposed to hope in? What are we supposed to hope for? Well, as we read in in Psalm 130, right? It exhorts God's people to hope in God for deliverance from their sins. Look what it says. Oh, Israel, verse 7. Hope in the Lord. And then he qualifies what we're supposed to hope for. For with the Lord, there is loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. Jesus Christ provides redemption from sin. Jesus Christ provides coverage from guilt. He takes that and he replaces it with his righteousness. He replaces it with his joy. He redeems you, verse 7, from all of your iniquities. And if we read passages like Colossians chapter 2, we'll, we'll be studying this in the next couple of Sundays that he takes it all upon himself and he dies and he cancels out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. That is God. That is Christ. And that is what we're called to do hope in him. But that's Psalm 130. Now, if you continue to read, right? Psalm 131, David in this Psalm exhorts us to hope in God to experience true satisfaction in him. Not just redemption, not just forgiveness, not just getting us in and, and, and calling us his children. But as we are in, we are saved. We are called as his children. What he exhorts us to do is to go through a process of denouncing ourselves, of finding a right seat in the back of the airplane and allowing him to fly the plane and to find satisfaction, to rest in him, to acknowledge that all we need is him. How do we come to have a weaned soul? How do we come to a place where we can, like with David in the privacy of our own closets, come to the Lord and say, Lord, my heart is not proud. Nor my eyes are haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. How do I do that? Well, we constantly renew our minds by focusing on Jesus, by denouncing ourselves. And so look what he says, hope in the Lord. When? Now. From this time forth. Right now is a good place to start hoping in the Lord. Mothers, fathers, students who are going to be dealing with finals here and you might be anxious and you might be excited and, and fearful at the same time. What do you do now? You, you right now, you, well, for students, you go to your rooms and you study as soon as we're done and you hope in the Lord. You trust in the Lord now, today, he says. 
But how do you maintain this hope tomorrow? Today is Sunday. Today is Mother's Day. We will be celebrating Mother's Day. We have been calling each other and congratulating each other. So today promises to be a pretty good day. But what about tomorrow? When you're back to school, when your children are up again, and when you're tired because you were up all night, what do you do? He says, continue to hope forever. Continue to hope. Count on God to care for you tomorrow. Hope in God forever. And that's something that we're called to do every day. So in conclusion, what are we called to do? We're called to practice hope, knowing that he has exactly where we need to be. We're called to practice hope, knowing that we can rest assured. We can rest in him. We hope in God, not our pride. Pride dies as the humility of faith lives on. Haughtiness lowers its eyes as the dependency of hope lifts up its eyes. The pursuit of impossibilities ceases when you start pursuing certainties. And God is certain. A final thought for us here. I do not want this psalm and the expectation of this psalm to be a burden for us. And David doesn't seem like David had this as a burden as well. You know, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, everyone who is watching here this morning, we are going to blow this psalm today. We're going to try to think, get, take things into our own hands. We're going to try to calculate, especially today, as we're dealing with COVID-19 and all that's surrounding it, as we think about the governments, as we think about the medicine, as we think about vaccines, as we think about seeing one another and hanging out with one another, all of that causes us to want to control and want to figure things out. And in the midst of all of that, we will fail the psalm. But I want to encourage you to hope and rest in Christ who lived out this psalm perfectly so that we can enjoy the seasons of rest that we find ourselves today, tomorrow. But ultimately, we can live this out perfectly forever in eternity. This is all of Christ. I want to read this psalm once again, and we will pray. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Dear God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the rest that you give us. We thank you that our weary souls, that our noisy hearts can come to a place where we can denounce pride, where we can compose ourselves, and where we can maintain a posture of humility, knowing that you are God. We don't have to involve ourselves 
in things that are too difficult, in things that are too marvelous, just too glorious for us. Father, build us up. Help us to look to Jesus this morning. We thank you for the assurance that we have in your word. We thank you for our moms. We pray for them and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.